So our reading this morning is from Exodus 22, 21 to 27. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, don't treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for this place, um, and thank you for every person that is here. I thank you for this reminder that you hear us and that you are compassionate and that you love us. And I thank you for the reminder in our song um, to call for us to behold and to look and to see what love can do. And I pray that your love would fill each of us up and transform us and also that we would be vessels to love each other and get to witness what that does um, in each other's lives. I pray that you would bless Alan, that you give him your words, that you'd open our hearts um, and our minds and our ears to hear and to receive, um, and not just to hear, but that we would walk it out with your spirit as our help and our guide. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, so we are uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Exodus, portions of it at least, because of how uh, the Bible um, tells us that this story is a, uh, a picture of our spiritual rescue from our slavery to sin. And you see, once we get in this story past the miracles of deliverance, you know, the, the ten plagues that were um, brought upon the people of Egypt, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, the miraculous deliverance, the daily manna falling from heaven and having food and, and water, the, the rest of the book really shows us that, that now that you have been rescued from your slavery, here's what it looks like for me to get the ongoing slavery out of your hearts. And that really is the theme, I think, of the book of Exodus. Because what we've been saying all along here is that it's, it's easier to get a person out of slavery than it is to get the slavery out of a person. You know, for example, and this is probably the most common that we all experience, it's, it's a lot easier for us to get out of the enslavement of our parents' overbearing expectations, because everybody feels that way when you want to leave, by just moving out of the house, right? And I'm gone, and they don't tell me what to do anymore. But it's a lot harder to get the voices of your parents' expectations out of your heart. You can carry that with you for the rest of your life, for years and years. And so God is working throughout these accounts here to teach them what it means for them to be free from their enslavements, in order to trust him, to be free from their old uh, gods, to be able to worship him, to be freed from their slavery of self-preservation so that they can love their neighbor. And this week now, we're coming to a section that's teaching them how to be freed for compassion, to be people of compassion, to have um, love and mercy toward the, the marginalized in their society. And of course, you can just imagine a group of people who have been enslaved for 430 years, they probably haven't developed a very strong sense of caring for the weak because most of their time was simply taking up with trying to survive themselves. And so God is teaching them here the importance of taking care of the weak 
in their midst, how to care for the marginalized amongst them. And, and listen, this is a very hot topic in our culture today. You know, the, I suppose you could say the, the buzzwords of 2023 are words like justice, right, equity, inclusion, uh, oppression, uh, and all sorts of words along those, those lines. And so this kind of topic gets our attention, right? Caring for the marginalized is really where all the talking points of our culture are right now. Because we live in a day and age in which people are desperate for a world of justice and equity, but nobody seems to know how to produce it. You know, for years we were told it was a problem that education would fix, that people just needed to be educated, or in some cases re-educated, to understand the, the needs of the oppressed. And yet we're the most educated people in the history of humanity, and we seem to be having more trouble than ever being able to get along. Political parties no longer have <clears throat> ideas that they share, but they have enemies who need to be destroyed. For example, the University of Virginia Center of Politics just this week put out a poll in which <clears throat> they found that 52% of Biden supporters say that Republicans are now a threat to America, while 47% of Trump supporters say the same thing about Democrats. In other words, what they're saying is the other side is an existential threat to humanity. Now that's pretty serious. I mean, we're, we're talking extermination here, right? That's the kind of language that's going on. Failing to agree with my opinions today automatically makes you a racist. Um, <clears throat> Hamas doesn't really want to live peaceably alongside their neighbors, but have stated they won't be content until they've destroyed every last one of them from the face of the earth. People who don't agree with my views uh, my social views on transgenderism or LGBTQ issues need, need to be completely erased from society. Right? They have no place in this world unless they can be re-educated to think like me. And so what I'm trying to say is that hate is growing stronger, not weaker. It's not getting less and less. Right? And, and listen, there's just something innate inside of every one of us that knows that people should be treated fairly and justly and yet we've tried education and that hasn't worked we've tried mandating equity through laws from both sides of the political spectrum and all that's done is create a deeper division and mistrust so how do we even get there is it even possible and so that's where we turn to our passage this morning to see that the bible gives us a different rationale for caring for the marginalized and the oppressed and, and it certainly is a command that we are to do so. You know, we simply can't tell people, you know, be more responsible and get your act together like I did. That, that, that's not what the Bible calls us to do. But it's a command from a God that gives us a radically different reason beneath it. <clears throat> and see, what we've been seeing all along here, especially as we've worked our way through the Ten Commandments the last couple of weeks, is that the laws that God gives to us are, are more than simply ways to live right you know it's not just here's how you can be a better person go do this stop doing that follow these rules but his laws are a way of expressing his character and his nature the, these laws are simply a reflection of who God is and therefore what a life of of joyful flourishing for us ought to look like see what what God is saying here is if you want to live a happy life this is what it looks like 
Paul Tripp puts it this way, and I don't have it on the quote because I just found this this morning. He said, these are now the places where I joyfully live out the life I have been given by redeeming grace. If you have been redeemed, if you've been rescued, if you've been freed, this is what it means, was what it looks like to live out that joyful life as you follow these commands. And God is saying, if you want to live the most secure life possible, the most satisfying life possible, follow the designs I have placed within your hearts by following these commands. Because you see, the laws of God here are ways to understand what really God's concerns are, to understand his heart, to understand his values and his desires. And so what God is doing here in this particular passage is he's giving us his heart for the poor, for the oppressed, for the marginalized. And he invites us to have that same heart. And so to best understand this passage, I want us to start with, with just a very simple principle to begin, and that is that we all know and understand what it is to experience a deep exile. That really is the core teaching, I think, of this entire passage. Because you see, now, now that the miracles of the ten plagues are passed, now that the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea is behind them and they've been given manna and quail to eat, and God is showing them how they should live in the light of the freedom that he's brought to them. Or as the New Testament often parallels this story for us, now that the cross and Jesus' life and death for us are in our rearview mirror, we can look back and, and read about what he's done. This is one of the ways to experience the newfound freedom that you have. And in this case, it's the freedom to take care of the poor and the oppressed. And see, God is showing his, us here the heart that he has for the marginalized among us, for those who are disadvantaged. And he mentions here four specific categories. Verse 21, the foreigner, the immigrant. Verse 22, the widow, the orphan. Verse 23, the poor or the needy. And, and I don't think these are the only categories, but I think they're the ones that are most prolific, the, most, the people who are most likely to be oppressed in an ethnically restrictive, male-dominated society like Israel had. And what God says here is not merely, hey guys, remember these marginalized people to take care of them. But he actually tells us that if you are not proactively thinking about ways to serve these people, then you don't know my heart. And even worse, he says, and therefore you don't deserve to exist. Ouch. I mean, listen, look, listen to what he says in verse 24. If you don't do this, I will kill you. That's what God says to his people. Now, that's pretty serious. And, and though it might sound a bit harsh, God tells us why in verse 27. For I am a compassionate God. And by doing this, you are expressing the very heart of God himself. And if you think maybe this sounds a bit harsh for God to be this angry at our lack of care for the poor and the oppressed, you need to listen to his heart of love beneath what he's saying here. Because we all know this from our own experience. We get the most angry when someone that we love the most is being taken advantage of. I mean, right, we, we all have a general concern when we see injustice taking place on the other side of the world or, or even on the other side of the street with your neighbor. Uh, it's a general sort of concern. I, I might write a letter of protest. I might go out and stand with my sign in protest. But you mess with my kid and I'm coming after you, right? Because the more you love somebody, the more angry you are when there's something that threatens them. And so clearly this must be important to God. Clearly he has a love for the marginalized that we often lack. 
And, and so what I don't want you to hear here is God saying, be compassionate or else, or else I'm going to come get you. That's not his point here. Rather, he's telling us why. Why should we have a heart for the marginalized? And really, this is the heart, I think, of this passage and certainly the heart of this sermon. It's in verse 21. He says, because you were foreigners yourselves in Egypt. Listen, when, when the world tries to promote justice for the oppressed, the, the best that they've been able to come up with is to say, well, now that you've been oppressed, it's your turn to be the oppressor for a while. And you oppressors, it's your turn to be oppressed. But, but that's not justice. That, that's, that, that's simply taking turns being evil. <laughs> and it only perpetuates the oppression in vicious cycles that are unending. But notice how God motivates our care for the marginalized. He says, listen, remember you were there yourself once. You guys know what this feels like. Remember that as you deal with the marginalized around you. And see, God is telling us here that the level of justice that we are willing to offer to others is tied to our own ability to remember and to recognize our own slavery to sin from which we have been rescued. Our own experiences living as an outsider, our own feelings of being oppressed and taken advantage of. Uh, Janie and I were watching a movie this week uh, called A Million Miles Away. It's a story about a Mexican immigrant, uh, a migrant farm worker, and he struggles as he comes with his family to the States to fit in. But it's really the story of him longing to be an astronaut and his whole story of how he becomes an astronaut uh, on the space shuttle program. But there's one point in the movie where his cousin says to him, because he's feeling so down about, and who am I? I'm just a migrant Mexican immigrant. Who am I to want to be an astronaut? And his cousin says, who better to explore the great unknown than a migrant farmer who's always moving from place to place to find work? You're the best person to do that. And, and I want you to think about what does it mean to actually be a foreigner? Um, having lived in England myself for a while, I have a bit of an understanding for what it feels like. You, you, you don't get the jokes. You wouldn't think about, but you just don't get any of the jokes because they're usually based on a cultural experience that you have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, I could listen to the radio for hours and never understand a thing that was going on. It baffled me. It's the same language, and I don't have a clue what you're even talking about because the cultural expressions don't fit with my experience or my context. It, you know, I suppose it's sort of like an American saying something was a slam dunk when you have no idea what basketball is all about. What are you talking about? Or, or you might be someone who says, you know, man, my life feels like it's fourth and ten and I'm backed up to my own goal line. Now, for those of you who don't know football, you're confused, right? Uh, because th there are certain contexts that we just have no idea what's going on around us. But, but even worse, an immigrant doesn't always have the full rights of citizenship that everybody else has. In some cases, you can't own land. You don't have the same access to legal justice. You don't always have the freedom from exploitation. You don't have the right to stay in the country if, if you want to. And see, God is telling his people, remember what it's like to not have any of those rights. Remember because listen, the story of the exile is not just the story of the Israelites, it's the story of humanity itself. Because the story of humanity begins with all of us at home. 
in the garden, in community with God, in community with nature. When, and when Adam and Eve decided that being like God wasn't enough, but they wanted to be fully God, they were banished from that home. They were exiled from God's presence. And so now everywhere they go and everywhere we've gone since that day, they experience corruption and chaos and decay. And so that's something we can all identify with, right? Because we, we know what it feels like to be broken. We experience the effects of that brokenness every day. I mean, nothing in this world operates the way it's supposed to operate. Somewhere deep in our hearts, we all feel alienated. We're, we're not at home. E even sometimes in our own skin, I just don't feel at rest with me. You know, the hope of a new job leaves us feeling empty at the end of the day. Uh, the prospect of a new love relationship turns into the reality that they're just as screwed up as everybody else has been. Uh, that new truck gets dings and dents and starts to sputter. Nothing will bring our hearts home the way that they promise they will. Or, or look at how we deal with death in our society. You know, the world likes to face it by saying things like, death is just natural. It's just a part of life. It's inevitable. It's part of that circle of life. And yet everybody knows that when you're faced with the death of somebody that you loved dearly, everything inside of you is screaming, this shouldn't be. This is wrong. This should never take place. Life wasn't meant to end like this. There's something unhuman about death. And see, that feeling is the sense of exile, a bondage to death that we all hate, a bondage to brokenness and decay that we spend our lives fighting against through exercise and diet and living right. We fight constantly and we still end up old and fat and broken, right? Listen, death and disease and hurt and abuse, even just disappointment in general, they all reveal the exile that we feel in our hearts. And everything inside us just knows that it's, it's just not right. The world shouldn't be broken like this. Kids shouldn't die of cancer or in a car accident. I shouldn't have to suffer like I'm going through right now. It's wrong. And it reveals that our hearts all know that we're not really at home yet. Everything around us is in chaos. Everything is less than it ought to be. And you see, if this world is not our real home and life is not the way that it ought to be, then every one of us knows what it feels like to be foreigners, to be aliens in a strange land. As C.S. Lewis put it, the fact that our heart yearns for something earth can't supply is proof that heaven must be our home. And, and even if you don't believe in heaven, everybody is still going to be forced one day to leave this world through death. We are all migrants in this world, and we need to remember that. And, and think about this. Why did God go to all the trouble of encoding these instructions for us? I mean, if we're all aliens and we're all strangers and this is all of our experience, we, we know what it feels like. Why does he need to put this into law form? And I think because God knows we're going to forget it, right? We will start, once we get on top, we'll start to oppress others. He knows that once we reach the place of power, we will start to look down on and belittle those other people politically and socially and financially. The, the powerful always become the oppressors. The, the natural citizens always discriminate against the immigrant. 
stable people who have strong families and encouraging environments to live in always take advantage of the fatherless cultures where the kids are raised in chaos and don't have that rock to center their world upon. And God says the nature of the human heart is such that this will become a pattern for you if I don't encode these commands into law. I mean, listen, where do you think redlining comes from? Where you take advantage of the poor and the chaos of the inner city to help the wealthy suburban folks stay safe and rich by putting the freeways in their backyard, right, instead of mine. But by propping up my bank without the risks of giving people like that a loan. Where do you think some of our great school districts that we're so proud of come from? Where through busing or messing with the school boundaries, we keep the messy and the poor away from our privileged kids. Where do you think some of the harsh attitudes of the church toward the transgender and gay communities comes from? Because we're, we're confident of our superior morality because we've made better choices. And we don't want to have to deal with messy people like that in our midst. Listen, we do this sort of thing all the time to make our lives safer, to make our lives easier, to make our lives less messy. And listen, for the Christian, one of the things that this is telling us is that nothing in this world can ever be our final home, ever. Not a Christianized America, right? Not an originalist constitution, not a Trump presidency, not moral and social agendas that agree with all of my views, not your race, not your traditional Southern values. Listen, everything that you turn to, to try to turn and make into your final home, it's gonna fall apart. Everything does. Listen, if you make your country into your home, it leads to fascism. If you make your race into your final home, you will be a bigot toward other races. If you make your job your final home, you'll destroy your family. And if you make your family your, your home, you're going to drive your kids away with, with, from pressures that are too much to bear. And you're going to lose your joy when your kids don't turn out the way you hoped. Everything in this world is incapable of providing your heart with a sense of home that it was looking for. And we need to realize that every single one of us is living in exile. This world is not our home. There's a bondage that we all share to brokenness and disease and death and disappointment and chaos that are constant reminders to us that we're just not there yet. We're not home. So what do we do about it, right? If we all suffer from a sense of alienation in our hearts, how do we cope? How do we survive? Because see, the, the Bible tells us that we all know the world is broken. We, we all know that it's not what it's supposed to be because we once had that perfect home with God, and, but we lost it. And when we believed that lie, that God wasn't enough, that somehow he was holding out on me, keeping me from being all that I could be, now when I'm kicked out of his presence, I start looking for home and all the things out there that God has made. In the imprints of God's creation found out in the world, because I know I need God, but I don't have God, so I'm going to find the things that God made. And I'm going to see beauty in creation. I'm going to see beauty in a woman. I'm going to see satisfaction in a job. I'm going to turn to all the imprints of God throughout creation. But I can do that without the sticky fingers of God and his laws that grant my style, telling me what to do and how to do it. You know, maybe it's a sense of belonging to the right group. And that makes, whether it's, you know, think about this, cliques at school when you're growing up that make you feel in, or it could be some social group 
that pronounces you woke or, you know, following Trump because you're just mad at being overlooked and he's really good at getting even with my enemies. Or maybe for you, it's not a group of people. Maybe it's, maybe you're looking for it in a, in a love relationship, an intimacy where you are accepted by another person. And of course, we all know that if you try to get your sense of acceptance and value as a person from another person, the pressure of that is going to destroy your relationship and drive you apart because nobody can bear the full weight of your life. Nobody can be your savior. Or maybe for you, it's the feelings of success or security that you hope is going to provide enough of a buffer around your life that all the inevitable pains of life won't be able to touch you. But that doesn't work either because we all know that having all the money in the world isn't going to protect you from trouble. In fact, money brings a unique set of troubles all its own. And see, we, we all have various longings that gives us a hint of home. And we have a constant reminder of home and all the things that we're chasing. We might even have brief glimpses of it, but they all quickly fade and we're never there. And so we look for more and more out there. We tell ourselves it's just around the corner and every corner has its own corner and life chases itself on and on forever. As usual, nobody puts this better than C.S. Lewis. And I know I quoted this just a few weeks ago, but it is so on point. We need to hear it again. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, this place we call home, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which, which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is, it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trusted them because it was not in them it only came through them and what came through them was longing these things the beauty the memory of our own past are all good images of what we really desire but if they are mistaken for the thing itself they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers for they are not the thing itself they are only the scent of a flower we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard news from a country we have never yet visited. And then he goes on to say, at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. I mean, listen, you can even turn to religion in the church as a way of trying to find a sense of home, 
without doing it through God. Maybe it's being in a community where I feel like I belong. Maybe it's the old hymns that remind me of my past. But even that is insufficient to truly bring us home because it's still only reminding us of it. It isn't it. So what will bring us home? And of course, as always, the answer is Jesus, right? Because through Jesus, we can all begin to experience a coming home in our hearts, a hint and a taste of that coming home that we were built for. Because listen, if God is this serious about our care for the oppressed, that he's going to kill us if we don't, then we all have to admit that there have been times when we have done this. We've all missed opportunities to care for the marginalized, and therefore, we're all deserving of death. So how is Jesus the answer that we're all looking for? Listen, Jesus came to earth for the very purpose of going into exile. He takes on the banishment that we deserve, and he does this in order to bring us lost wanderers home. You remember that place in Matthew 8 where Jesus says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, what Jesus is saying is, I'm homeless, right? Other people have homes, even animals have their homes, but I don't have one because I am intentionally entering into the lostness of humanity so that you who were lost can be found and can be brought home again. You remember that other place where Jesus cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, why? And the answer to that is, well, you and me, that's why. He endured all of this homelessness. He endured the rejection of his father so that we who are outsiders from his presence might be brought back in. And see, as we've said, we all live with a sense of alienation in our hearts. None of us ever feel like we're truly at home. But here's how Jesus starts to bring us back. And if his life and his death breaks the barrier that keeps us out of the presence of the garden of his presence, we could put it, then what is it going to look like for us to return to that garden? Even if it's only legally true of us now and not our full experience. I mean... Imagine if you could be at home in a secure place where you belong and nothing could ever take it away from you. If we could find this, even if it's only in our hearts, then criticisms that come our way wouldn't destroy us. Broken relationships going on in our midst would not rip us apart. Our our failures would no longer define us. The abuse from others would not own us. If Jesus really secured for us the death of death, then for us, death is just our entrance into our final home. And though the experience of death doesn't end all the pain and the suffering of it uh, and all the painful goodbyes that we have to go through in a death, it does transform how we look at death because funerals aren't the end anymore. It's merely a temporary goodbye. And hey, we'll see each other again soon, right? And see, the fear and the power of death are now gone. Because the worst death can do to you is bring you home. I mean, even for those of us who are experiencing the aging process, or maybe for some of those of you who experience some physical limitations, I mean, sure, it's sad, it's hard, it can be painful at times, but one day we're going to dance in the kingdom of God. The healing of everything that is broken today will come true. 
And see, what God is telling us here is that to the degree we can remember what Jesus did and how he rescued us from our alienation, every facet of our lives will be transformed. I mean, take loneliness as an example. This is just so humorous. One of the most common problems I think everybody faces is loneliness. We have this desperate desire to be known, to be, to be heard. We want people to understand me for who I really am deep down inside. And yet our greatest fear in life is to be known, for people to know who I am down inside, the fear of rejection. And, and, and it would be funny if it weren't so true that our greatest desire in life is to be known, and yet our greatest fear in life is to be known. <laughs> and so we deal with this conundrum, uh, modern days at least, with social media, where we can just share the parts of our story that are safe and happy, right? And we can hide the parts that show just how screwed up we really are. But you see, Jesus comes along here and says, guys, I see every bit of you. I see every motive deep in your heart. I see every hidden thing going on there. I see it all. And yet I still loved you enough to live and die in your place. And, and to the degree that you can see that, it gives you confidence and assurance to be able to enter into risky relationships with other people. Because even if they reject me, even if they laugh at me, even if they turn their backs on me, Jesus never will. And that gives you the freedom to be honest about who and what you really are instead of the exhausting work of trying to spin what other people see. It gives you the ability to admit what a poor husband or wife that you are, what a poor father or mother that you are. Listen, if you're afraid of being rejected, you'll never admit that. But if you have the acceptance of Jesus, you have a piece of home in your heart that frees you to be radically honest to be radically loving and serving to other people because it's not about me. It's about passing on the same love that God has extended to me, the same grace that he's given to me. And this is, I think, what it means to experience a partial homecoming in our hearts today, right now. But it's only a partial homecoming. And I think it's important that we remember that because we still face hard things. We come home in our hearts, but we don't come home in our physical lives, not yet. We haven't escaped disease and death, not yet. We have that peace of home in our hearts, but we're not living in that home. And so as we end here, I want us to ask, how can we learn to live today in the light of that unfulfilled longing? Because not only is our outer world not transformed yet into our home, even within our own hearts, we struggle to believe and remember that Jesus is all that I need. Our hearts are still easily captivated by the seductive lies of money and sex and ambition. And I, and I so easily forget that I can just let go of all that and just rest in what he's purchased for me. But I forget that all the time. In fact, I think our struggles are even deeper than not remembering if that weren't bad enough because... Listen, I, here's the honest truth. The closer that you actually come to experience the true home of Jesus in your heart, that very growth will make you feel even more like an exile than you were when you were out struggling for life in the world. Because the closer you get to the heart of God, the more you will come to see just how far away that you are from what he designed you to be. You've been further away all along than you ever knew. And not only that, but you will increasingly come to see that the core of your values, the, the core things that drive you in this life are in utter contrast to how the world lives. Because you don't, you don't care about being better than anybody 
anymore. You're not driven by the pursuit of money and success any longer. Uh, the, the exhilarating feeling of being on the right team and winning politically or socially or athletically doesn't get you going anymore because you've got something better than that to look forward to. You have a piece of home right now in your heart. And one day you're going to experience that home in all its fullness. Now, these guys keep quoting Narnia, so I have to give my own plug for Narnia. And in the very last Narnia book, The Last Battle, uh, there's a place where they come to what looks like a destroyed version of Narnia. They look at this place and they say, I thought, I, I thought Narnia was gone. But this can't be Narnia because we know that it was destroyed. And this is what he says toward the end of that book. No, that was not the real Narnia. That one had a beginning and an end. It was only a copy of Narnia, which has always been and always will be here. Just like our own world, England, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia. Every rock, every flower, every blade of grass looks as if it was meant for more. I have come home at last. I think this is the horse talking. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And the reason we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. <laughs> Listen, if you knew that the world today is merely a shadow of what it will be one day, if you knew that you yourself were only a shadow of what you will be uh, one day, that would mean that you were made for so much more than the mere things of this world. And you would come to see that you've been wasting your life fighting over scraps from the table and playing in mud puddles when a great banquet and a holiday at the sea are on the horizon for each one of us. This is the new world that's actually coming and one day will be our final home. And I think what God is saying in this passage is if we treat the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed without care and compassion, we are living as if this world and all it offers is our home. And we're forgetting what's yet to come. See, this is why the world's attempts for compassion toward the marginalized and the oppressed always fall short. Because in their view, somebody always has to win. And it becomes political, it becomes confrontational. And the best we could do is take turns being oppressors. While we, you know, bash the others, the most recent offenders. And while it might feel a little bit like justice and equity, it ignores the ultimate quest for a true place of home, of belonging, that's at the core of every single one of us. And there's no motivation for self-sacrifice to bring that about outside of Jesus. Listen, as Christians, we should be the most loving, the most compassionate, the most sacrificial people on earth because we, more than anybody else, know all that we have been rescued from. But the reality is we're not. We're not known in this world for our love and our compassion and our sacrifice. We're known for our snobbery, for our self-righteousness, for looking down on people. Because we so often forget where our true home really is. And we're forgetting the alienation that God is rescuing us from in our hearts. Listen, does your theology of life give you a heart that is committed to people, especially marginalized people? Do you live in light of the coming redemption in this world? Or do you live as if this world and all its competing desires uh, for its resources is really all there is to life? 
Are you able to forgive others? Can you repent easily? Because you've been cosmically, uh, through Jesus, given everything that you need. Or maybe if you can't get over somebody hurting you in some way. Even that is an example of not understanding your own present exile and the coming redemption and restoration that's yet to be. If you can't have joy in the midst of the trials and suffering that you're going through right now, it means that you don't understand that your current exile is just a shadow of a hope of what is promised ahead of you. We have been made for so much more than the scraps that we fight over each day. And that means that everything that we do each day matters even more, not less. Throw yourself into these things with reckless abandon because you have the security of Jesus in your heart today. And you have the promise of a new world enveloped by that love in the future. And Jesus is telling us here to use that reminder of your personal rescue to fuel a passion for helping those who are in the midst of their alienation today. Let's pray. Lord, we admit that um, though we are aliens and feel that alienation in so many facets of our lives, our tendency is to turn inward and say, well, I've got to do something to fix it. And so we don't even care about anybody else. We want our satisfaction and our contentment and our security and our joy and other people are just in our way. And I pray that you would help for us to see that all the things that we long to have and to experience, you've already given to us so that we can now be freed to have compassion on those around us, to serve them and to love them and to offer them the same hope, the same grace, the same acceptance that you have given to us. Holy Spirit, would you please work within the hearts of your people here that we would become for Bristol and our surrounding communities the kinds of people who are willing to sacrifice everything to be able to share that love for the marginalized in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.